ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy and your host of Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring season two of the Bellingcat podcast, which takes you inside the group's investigation of a brutal war crime in Cameroon in Central Africa. Listen along as Bellingcat's investigators and their international partners pour over a grainy video, their only piece of evidence, looking for vital clues to uncover the truth about these gruesome acts. In just a minute, we're going to play the first episode of the two-part series. But first, I spoke to Bellingcat founder Elliot Higgins about the group's groundbreaking work. Well, thank you so much for sharing your podcast with us. And I have to say, actually, hats off to your production company, Novel, that worked on it, because I'm a real sucker for narrative podcasts. And I think they've just done an incredible job of, well, you all have done an incredible job of making this story really, really powerful. And just to begin with, for the uninitiated, could you just give us your nutshell summary of what are open source investigations? So it's using publicly available information to investigate a variety of incidents. But what's really happened over the last 10 years or so is the wealth of that information being available. One reason for that is because of the availability of smartphones and the rise in social media sharing apps. So everyone's got a device in their pocket that they can film, take photographs in the moment as things are happening. And we search for that information. And alongside that, you also have things like Google Earth satellite imagery and Google Street View imagery as reference imagery. So you can confirm where photographs were taken using that. And that's a very valuable part of the verification process. So those two factors in particular have uh, really driven the rise of uh, online open source investigation. In the second season of the podcast, you explore how your team and the, and the organizations that you're working with were able to piece together where this one video of a really, really, really horrific crime takes place. And as a heads up to our listeners, there's a description of the video in the podcast, and it's brutal to even listen to a description of, let alone watch. And a lot of the folks in the podcast say that this is one of the worst things they've seen and they spend a lot of their, their jobs looking at these things day to day. And I was just wondering, I mean, how do you look after your staff when they're, they're being confronted with these videos and having to, to watch them multiple times and in excruciating detail to get these kind of clues? 
Yeah, uh, issues around trauma are something that's uh, a great concern to us at Bellingcat because I started doing this work looking at the conflict in Syria where there was vast amounts of this kind of traumatic imagery. So a big part of what we do is we you know, have workshops and stuff where people can talk about this kind of stuff. We have experts coming in to talk about trauma and how it can impact people and you know the differences between kind of vicarious trauma and uh, PTSD and other kind of issues and how we can deal with them and you know having like consulting kind of psychologists and stuff as well whenever we need them as well so it's really about making sure that your staff are aware they're in an environment where they can talk about this stuff rather than saying you know just get on with it you'll be fine you have to like really address these issues face on. So you were working with Amnesty International on this investigation and when they published a report saying that they believed that the uniforms in this video were of the Cameroonian military and the Cameroonian government turned around and said, well, this is fake news. And I'm just wondering, I've seen this accusation get thrown at your work a lot. It's a very easy rebuff. Does that work when governments say that? You know, what impact does that have? I mean, it's a video. How do you fake a video of a murder? Yeah, I mean, when a government says something like that about a video we've been looking at, then that's, you know, like a red rag to a bull to us because that's just going to drive us on to investigate that video further. And that's exactly what happened with this Cameroon video. It was very clear the government wasn't going to take the video seriously and try and dismiss it as fake news. And that just kind of really made us aware that this video had to be looked into because no one else was going to do it, certainly not the Cameroonian government. And I think that was a really big motivating factor for us in this investigation. Do you see it having any impact, though, in audiences online or amongst populations when they say, oh, well, the government said this was fake, so, you know, therefore I'm not going to listen? No, I mean, in this case, it didn't really work out for them. I mean, we kept on investigating and we, because we could address kind of specific things they were saying that indicated it was a fake, like, oh, these, this isn't Cameroonian uniforms, for example, and we proved, yes, it is. These aren't Cameroonian weapons. We proved, yes, it is. To the point where we found the names of the soldiers who were involved in the Cameroon army. And then at that point, it's very hard to keep going on about it being fake news. What was quite unusual about this story compared to some of the work we do on places like Syria, for example, is because there was a, you know no kind of Russia to veto things at the Security Council, which is usually how Syria gets away for things. I think the government came under a lot of international pressure. I mean, there was money that was you know coming from various Western states related to their security operations that they didn't get because they hadn't addressed this violence and these executions. So I, I think because we were able to have that kind of external pressure along with our investigation, that was extremely helpful. And in the second episode of this mini-series that, that we're going to hear more of today, you describe a bit about the open source culture that some of these people, you don't even necessarily know who they are. They have these anonymous avatars on Twitter. And could you just talk a little bit more about what's that culture like and, and how does that work? Yes, yeah, so because I think a lot of online open source investigators kind of congregated on Twitter in the early years, that's become kind of like almost a medium for a lot of discussion. So you have all kinds of people who express opinions and then kind of get into it as a hobby and some are better than others. But there are some people out there who are really brilliant open source investigators that I don't even know the real name of. But because of open source investigating being so transparent, you can check their work and see what their reputation is aside from, you know, as an investigator, separate from their identity. So for me, I mean, it's, it's kind of never been really an issue because, you know, when I started, I was doing it kind of under a pseudonym as well. Brown so, Moses. Yeah, I just assume there's kind of other people like that out there. And when it comes to certain investigations, you can sometimes spot people who are doing really good work on a very specific thing and then bring them into the investigation. Do you ever worry about infiltration, though, from foreign intelligence services? 
I mean, it's something we always think about because, you know, really attracted the attention of the Russian uh, security services, for example. But when we're using open source evidence, again, because it's kind of from transparent sources, it's quite easy to check it. And anything that's kind of just dropped in our lap or given to us too easily will triple check. We're very suspicious, kind of naturally anyway. So if something kind of just gets dropped in our lap and it looks too good to be true, we'll just be so careful about checking it. Yeah, with good with good reason, I think, as you said, the, the Russian intelligence services must be must be on your case. Is there anything else that you want to add, or any other thoughts that you want to tee up this podcast? Well, I mean, we're hoping we'll be able to continue producing these podcast series. We've just set up a production company and plan to um, start producing more regular series of the podcast starting in 2022. My hope is the next series will be on um, Syrian chemical weapon use and take the perspective of both the victims and the perpetrators that we'll hopefully be interviewing as part of the podcast. But yeah, I mean, we'll continue to do that. We're hoping to do a much longer series of about 12 episodes where each episode will be a kind of looking at a different investigation, but to that same kind of quality that we've had in the previous seasons of the podcasts. Because there's some small investigations which themselves are very interesting, but wouldn't stretch to kind of two or three episodes. So it's quite exciting to be able to do that. And I'm hoping we'll also do a series that looks specifically at justice and accountability and how open source evidence is being used there. Because over the last few years, there's been a really big growth in that. Lots of involvement from big accountability bodies, including places like the International Criminal Court. And I think it's something that unless you're really involved with it, you wouldn't know was happening. And it's quite an important thing for how we kind of prosecute conflicts in the future that was elliot higgins and here now is the episode from the bellingcat podcast the executions every morning when i wake up my phone is already full of the worst things that have happened in the world overnight I treat these kind of videos like radiation. Minimal amount of time with it, minimal closeness to it, minimal exposure. But this video, unfortunately, I have it memorized. This video was the most horrific and cold-blooded I've ever seen. It is one of the worst videos I had to watch over and over and over and over again. An infant child cannot have done something bad. The eyes of the baby looking to the camera. At any point, somebody could have stopped it, and they didn't. You're listening to the Bellingcat Podcast, Season 2. I'm Elliot Higgins. I started Bellingcat just six years ago. We specialised in open source journalism, cracking cases with only the tools that you or anyone could find on the internet. Since then, it's gone from being me with a blog to 18 full-time employees. But the techniques we use are still the same, open source investigation. Things like Google Maps, weapon databases, reverse image search, even just digging around in people's Facebook profiles. Every clue has a value, no matter how tiny, and when you stick them all together, a pattern emerges. Thanks to a worldwide network of amateur investigators, this unique approach has allowed us to break big global stories. 
In 2014, we showed conclusively how a Russian army rocket launcher brought down Flight MH17. In 2016, we proved that illegal cluster bombs were being used in Syria. And it was us, in 2018, who first revealed the true identities of the Skripal poisoning suspects. But in season two of the Bellingcat podcast, I want to take you into a story that has received far less coverage. It's set in a place the world often overlooks, inside a forgotten war, one that has continued long after the hashtags ran out. This is episode one, The Executions. I remember the first time I saw the video. It was July 10th, 2018, a hot muggy English summer's day and I was stuck indoors running a Bellingcat workshop. Our workshops are where we seed our techniques to journalists, investigators and other open source enthusiasts. Normally, I give our workshoppers real cases to practice on. Maybe it's geolocating a drone strike in Syria or hunting for clues after an air raid in Yemen or disentangling webs of Russian disinformation But that day, halfway in, I noticed something deeply unpleasant being passed around on Twitter. It was a war crime on the face of it. A murder, more plainly. Only, the face of it was all we had to go on. No one knew where it was filmed, or who shot it, or who the victims were. As Twitter began to hum with conspiracies and disinformation, I asked everyone at the workshop to stop what they were doing and just watch. First time I saw the video was over WhatsApp. One of my sources sent it to me. I received it from several sources via WhatsApp. I believe I was among the first ones to actually watch the video. I was walking into the office and journalists who came up to me and say, hey, have you seen this video that's going viral on Twitter and on social media platform at the moment? And lo and behold, I saw this shocking, shocking video on Twitter. Anyone who watches this video is, sees that there's something deeply wrong about what's happening. You've just heard the voices of some of the investigators who worked on the case. They're about to describe the video's content in graphic detail. So a quick warning, just in case you didn't realise already, it's not an easy listen. There's a group of people walking down this dirt road. It's hard to tell where it is. The landscape is dry. It's a yellow trail. The video is quite blurry, so it's hard to make up every detail. There's some green trees in the background, and we can see a couple of of buildings and a, and a, a goat or an animal on the left. And you see that there are some soldiers... They have a few different kinds of rifles. And the one at the front is sort of swinging his arms in this macho, proud walk with his weapon strapped to his back. And he has this whistle. It almost sounds like something out of Hunger Games or something. There's a narration. The, the person taking the video is introducing you to everyone. Here is this corporal, and and here is this guy, and it's a very upbeat and kind of like friendly introduction video. You know, they're waving at each other, and everybody's happy, and then you realize that everybody's happy except for two women 
who have children, very young children, on their backs, and they're being hit. You've got two helpless women with their children. They're being slapped around. And this guy in these aviation glasses, he almost looks like the bad guy out of a film. He even tells her, you're going to die, you're going to die. And the woman keeps on holding the little girl uh, by the hand. And you can see that her head's bent towards her daughter, you know, almost trying to console emotionally her daughter because, I mean, you can see the way her daughter is walking. She's so, so frigid and stiff, absolute struck with fear, paralysed with fear because mum's being hit. You know, if, if you put yourself in that situation, what would you do if, if you were marched by soldiers? The only thing you can do is give them some comfort. They keep walking down this path. And then they turn off this path. That's sort of the point that I know what's going to happen. I want to stop in this moment because that's really one that gets me the most in this video. So you see one of the soldiers walking the woman and that woman's got a baby strapped to her back and you see the, the little child making eye contact with the camera. This child looks at the camera with this really accusing look, like even, I don't know, this baby is one or two years old and the baby obviously doesn't know what's coming, but is can sense that something something's going on and something's wrong. And so they walk up towards this big tree and this big rock, and then they start to blindfold them. They put the little girl's T-shirt over the top of her head. He's not really put much effort into how he's put this blindfold on because it's almost slipping off her face. The soldier forces the mother and the baby to the ground. And she's obviously fallen down as well, just feeling completely helpless. And straight after they draw their weapons. They've all got their guns up. They've all cocked their weapons. And the guy with the aviator sunglasses is the first one to start firing. He shoots the lady with the floral dress and the little girl, and you can see the bullets hit the rocks behind them, and then the two guys on the left, they both shoot the lady in pink with the baby on her back. And you can see the sand kick up as the bullets pass through the bodies. Just keeps firing. Even though they're dead bodies, this guy just wants to shoot them. And you think, it's just a poor thing. Like He hadn't even seen life, pretty much. And those soldiers just didn't give him the chance to, to have a life on, on Earth. There's quite a lull in the fire. 
And at this point, the cameraman walks up and first films the baby and the mum, and you can see blood coming out of the back of the baby. And then one of the other soldiers starts firing again. And then the, the rest of the guys shot, like, you know, stop firing, stop firing, that's enough. camera pans around to have one last look at the woman and the baby with the blood trickling out into the sand behind them and then that's it When we were done watching, the whole room lapsed into silence. I thought of my own kids, not far off in age, and I thought of the relatives of these women and children, of the obscenity of these murders being recorded, and of something even worse, that they were now a viral sensation. These relatives would still be out there somewhere, but where? We had no idea, no context on the clip, no sense of who they were nor did we know anything about the killers, the soldiers. After all, these appeared to be troops, government troops, not rebels or mercenaries or bandits. That threw up a lot of very serious questions. Was this murder done by rogue elements? Or perhaps it was the only thing worse, a government-backed death squad? No one had a single clue but we knew that out there, there were suddenly a lot of people looking. One of them was Laria Allegrozzi. You see, beyond Bellingcat, there's actually a whole world of investigators in what we call the online open source investigation community. These are the part-timers, the internet obsessives, journalists, programmers, armchair vigilantes, a real cross-section of people, often incredibly brilliant in their own right. What they have in common is they all log on in their spare time to collaborate in pulling together clues that build towards a case. Solving this case would span an online open source investigation network working right across the globe, all of whom had varying levels of Bellingcat involvement. But the solution begins in earnest near Lake Chad in Central Africa with Ilaria, who lived on the continent for 17 years. In 2018, she was working for Amnesty International when she received a WhatsApp message. I received it from several sources via WhatsApp. Sources are my contacts on the ground, human rights defenders, journalists, and I believe I was among the first ones to actually watch the video. I was home and I remember I watched these women and children dying in front of the camera and I was shocked. I had absolutely no doubt when I watched the video that it was coming from Cameroon because I could recognize the accent. I could recognize the landscape, the outfits of the soldiers, and one of the things which really stood out for me was the language used by the soldier when they said BH. Oh. Of course, like this is Boko Haram, and this slang is only used in Cameroon. 
Boko Haram. Remember them? Perhaps you remember the hashtag, Bring Back Our Girls. In 2014, Boko Haram went from obscure regional menace to internationally famous when they kidnapped over 200 girls from Chibok Secondary School, northeast Nigeria. Then Islamist group, an Islamic State affiliate, has left a trail of bodies all over Central Africa. Cameroon's government is one of several that has been at war with Boko Haram since 2015, and it's up in the north of the country that the fighting is fiercest. Elaria's sources were constantly feeding her updates on the war that Boko Haram waged in the northern provinces of Nigeria, Chad and Cameroon, the triangle of states that meet directly around Lake Chad. I was quite used to see these kind of videos and pictures and footage coming from Central Africa, including Cameroon, and showing abuses by um, security forces or uh, armed groups, including Boko Haram. I quickly ran the video through my trusted contacts in Cameroon, and I texted the video to Brian and other colleagues at Amnesty International as soon as I received it. My name is Brian Kastner. I am the weapons investigator and bomb guy and military expert on Amnesty International's crisis response team. The first time I saw that video, I had only been in Amnesty for a couple months, and I had been getting these videos from Ilaria, and I remember specifically when she sent this one. She sent it with a warning that this was the worst one she had seen yet so I, I did steal myself a little bit. If Ilaria is saying that this is the worst one that she's seen yet, then there was something to that. There were several months there where every morning I had something from Ilaria on homes being burned in Cameroon or villages being burned down, ammunition that was found on the ground. And so a large portion of my job is sorting through these videos, verifying them. It's not a nice job, in other words. Brian and all of us have our ways of coping with what we've seen. But like so many, Brian saw something in that video that took him right to the edge of that capacity. Just the, the deliberateness of it, the coldness of the process. It wasn't just like some violation done in anger or some accident or whatever. It was planned, it took a long time, and at any point somebody could have stopped it and they didn't. If Alara's hunch about it being in Cameroon was right, then Brian could start to verify it with the easiest, most obvious clue in the video, the uniforms of the soldiers. I was an explosive ordnance disposal officer. That's the bomb squad. And I did that in the US military for eight years, did a couple tours in Iraq. And that's where I built up a background in weapons and ordnance. I mean, the two main things I was looking at is the uniform patterns and the weapons. The uniform patterns in some way is, is easier. Despite the number of militaries in the world, not everyone has a unique camouflage pattern. There's a couple basic patterns. There's tiger stripes and lizard stripes and chocolate chip and deserts and woodland camouflage. And each military uses some combination of those. And in this case, we had woodland camouflage, black t-shirts, the woodland pants. Woodland camo and a black t-shirt. That's the outfit worn by the most eager of the killers. The guy right at the end of the video, the one who wouldn't stop firing, pumping more and more bullets into the bodies until the others had to tell him to stop, twice. But it also turned out that there was more than one type of camo. We also had a lizard stripe combo. 
Lizard Stripe is a meld of jagged pointed shapes running horizontally across the garments with the same blacks, greens and browns as woodland camo. In the video, the Lizard Stripe jacket and trousers are worn by the man in the aviators. He's the guy at the start of the video, the one who has the almost comic air of villainy, who's slapping one of the women in the face, telling her she's going to die. And so what I'm going to be doing is checking, well, what do the soldiers of Cameroon wear, depending on what unit they're in and what part of the country? And then also, importantly, what does the Nigerian military wear? What do soldiers from Chad wear? So that way I can narrow it down. And helpfully in this case, in Nigeria and Chad, they wear different uniforms. In the Cameroon, it is a mixture of this woodland and uh, lizard stripe. And so that lined up. Or at least it seemed to. Amnesty published Brian's findings about the uniforms on their website. But the regime in Cameroon didn't take that lying down. One day after Brian's analysis of the uniforms was published, they hit back. The Cameroon government has denounced social media videos showing the Cameroonian Defence Forces executing civilians, describing the videos as fake. Cameroon's communications minister, Issa Chiroma Bakri, called a press conference. The video that is currently going around is nothing but an unfortunate attempt to distort actual facts and intoxicate the public. He was angry. He called the allegations fake news. He said the uniforms meant the soldiers couldn't possibly have been theirs. With regard to the attires of the perpetrators of these abuses, they are not the ones used by the staff of the military accused by Amnesty International. In addition, the outfits observed in the video are widely spread. These attires are often subject to open sale in the market. It was an odd rebuttal because it was easily refutable. And that particular rebuttal, well, we don't wear these kind of uniforms. I mean, it took an hour of checking for not just us, but journalists around the world to say, you know, that argument does not hold any water at all. Very important for our investigation was a photo released by U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM, which showed U.S. Army soldiers, probably special forces, training Cameroonian soldiers. And in that case, the Cameroonian soldiers are wearing the exact uniform as we saw several soldiers wearing in this particular video of the execution. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. The uniforms were a match, that much was clear. But then again, anyone could get some uniforms. Could this still be a case of imposters? To know for sure, we'd have to build the picture. And while Brown knows plenty about uniforms, what he really knows about is guns. 
Yes, I'm the weapons guy, and so I'm trying to figure out not just what is this weapon, but what does that tell me about what unit it is. It's not really a gee whiz, hey, I wonder what that gun is. It's why does that gun matter? How did it get there? Did it violate an arms embargo? Is there something we can prove about who committed a war crime or a human rights violation based upon that evidence? Identifying the weapons proved to be far harder. There's a couple rifles used in the execution. One of them, and carried by several soldiers actually, is some sort of Kalashnikov, AK variant, wooden stock, not really any unique features, and that did not help us at all because those kind of AKs are all over Africa. There's nothing unique about them. We're not gonna be able to pin it on one particular unit based upon wooden stock AKs. The AK-47 is the Model T Ford of guns, the most widely produced weapon in history. So the fact that two men in the video were carrying AKs doesn't tell us much of anything, a point the Cameroonian government was quick to make. It appears that the weapons used are of AK-47 type, commonly called Kalashnikov, widespread in Africa and found in the hand of both regular armies and criminal guns. If it had just been those two AKs, it would have been a dead end. But there's also a third rifle. This one isn't an AK or an AK copy, the kind of gun you could just pick up for a few hundred dollars anywhere on the continent. This one was far more distinctive. In the very beginning, you see the buttstock of it. The stock of the rifle, the shoulder end basically, had a distinctive triangle-shaped hole running through it. It was clearly designed that way to make the weapon lighter and easier to carry. And so that's immediately what I started tracking on where does this come from. Brian thought that the rifle might be an Israeli-made Galil rifle. He wasn't sure though. And if the details aren't bang on perfect, you just don't have a match. Which is where Ben Strick comes in. Ben is a Bellingcat collaborator. He also works for BBC Africa Eye as a journalist. But at the time, Ben was just a guy. Ben was living in Holland and doing IT things, but in his spare time, he was part of online open source investigation communities, chasing leads, looking for digital needles in haystacks, comparing tire treads, real life, low stakes, CSI. As a hobby, I was working on things like the Europol Trace an Object program, which is about you know tracing images that Europol would put up to identify or help in cases of sex offenders. And it was kind of like a bit of a competition on Twitter. People from Bellingcat would post a photo and you would try and geolocate or find things about the photo. So I never had any concept of Cameroon until we started looking at this video. By the point he arrives in our story, Ben had already acquired quite the reputation. His Twitter account had become a node in the online open source investigation community. Ben would post stuff he was working on. Others would chip in with clues, thoughts or rebuttals. That day, Ben fought back to a particular Serbian gun he was familiar with, one based on the AK, but modernised, only developed in the early 2000s and exported right around the world. The Galil is very, very similar looking to the Zastava M21. It's got the unique foregrip, it's got the unique barrel system, it has similar working parts, and the butt of the weapon system is quite unique. And I had a look at that and I just thought, that is the exact same type as the Zastava. So was it a Galil or was it a Zastava? We realised later on in the video 
that when one of the shooters has a jam or has to reload. He does the standard procedure of tilting the weapon to the side and having a look at the working parts of the weapon to see what's happened. And if you go frame by frame, you can see part of the handguard, you can see the gas return tube, you can see a few other key ID features. And lining that up, you realize very quickly, no, it's not any of the Galil options, that it really is the M21. So I started having a look online at whether the Cameroon military used this. And of course, I start seeing photos of the, the BIR, who is the squad in the Cameroon military that are accused of uh, human rights abuses. And here they are training with US Special Operations Forces and they've got this Sestava M21 that they're using and they're all carrying it. And I was like, that's, that's the weapon. That's what they use. Now, again, why does that matter? It's not gee whiz, oh, we figured out what gun it was. It's that the Serbians have only sold Zastava M21s to a few countries, and Cameroon is one of the very few countries, and the militaries of surrounding nations do not carry them. And so we checked a couple boxes here about the uniqueness and that not only do we identify specifically what it was, but we figured out why it mattered. Matching uniforms a gun that was only sold to the Cameroonian army, not their neighbours. That was a good enough lock. It would be pretty hard to fake both of those facts. The only question for me was, where did it happen exactly, and when did it happen? And how long ago? And was this a new video? But whether it was Cameroon soldiers doing this execution, no, I was absolutely sure. They had taken Ben, Brian and Alaria just a few days to identify the West African nation of Cameroon as the most likely location for the video. But Cameroon's still pretty big. At nearly 200,000 square miles, it's the 53rd biggest country in the world. Truth is, to say what country this happened in was the easy part. It would be much harder to say what village, where exactly. But there was at least one clue, and it's one that takes us right back to Boko Haram. Boko Haram has been stepping up attacks in Cameroon in recent days, and this was clearly a well-planned operation. Authorities say its gunmen struck Sunday in the northern town of Kolofata. They raided the home of the Deputy Prime Minister, Amadou Ali. He escaped, but six people were killed. The government, with help from Western countries, including Britain and the US, is fighting the Islamist terror group known as Boko Haram. The term literally means Western education is forbidden. And that message was the core of the original Boko Haram uprising back in 2009, when a charismatic preacher called Muhammad Yusuf encouraged his fellow Muslims to attack the state, and over a thousand people died. At the time, Yusuf was shot by police, but the leadership then fell to a charismatic warlord, Abul Bakar Shikau, who only redoubled the violence. In 2011, Boko Haram bombed the UN compound in Abuja, killing 11. By December of that year, they killed over a hundred in the northern Nigerian town of Damataru. On Christmas Day of that year, they attacked churches, murdering another 41. At almost the same time as the Chibok girls are being kidnapped, 
Boko Haram kill 300 people in the town of Gwoza in the north, and they make it their de facto capital, the base of a separatist Sharia state in Africa. Remember that this is about the same time the Islamic State has real territory, centred around Raqqa in Syria. But just like the Islamic State, who spanned the territory from Syria to Iraq, Boko Haram just didn't believe in old colonial era borders, they want it all. From 2015 they begin operating in the north of Cameroon, up near the frontier with Nigeria. So in the video, when one of the soldiers tells the victims, Bh or BH, you're going to die, it's an obvious clue to look for our village in the far north. This is a very poor and remote part of the world. And out in the villages, look, it's a pretty desperate hand-to-mouth existence. My name is Lindsay Hilsom. I'm the international editor for Channel 4 News. You know, the infant mortality rate is very high. There's not much in the way of education. There's not much in the way of healthcare. And it's a part of the world where you know, nobody cares about people very much. They survive, just about. And in 2015, I went to Marua in northern Cameroon, up on the border with Nigeria, with my team. And what we wanted to do was take a look at the battle against Boko Haram. Lindsay visited the far north of Cameroon in 2015, when the battle against Boko Haram was at its most fierce. Then, the Nigerian government was flushing Boko Haram fighters out of the forest areas on the Nigerian side of the border, which meant they ended up flushed over the border, towards Cameroon. There, the fighters were attacking small villages on a daily basis, killing hundreds and causing thousands more to flee from their homes. But as Lindsay soon discovered, in fact Boko Haram weren't the only threat that the villagers had to contend with. One of the most interesting things on that trip was we went to a village right up on the border, which was a Kanuri village. Now the Kanuri are the tribe from which Boko Haram derives most of its fighters. And these people, I realized, are caught between Boko Haram and the Cameroonian military. And Boko Haram accused them of collaborating with the Cameroonian military, and the Cameroonian military accused them of collaborating with Boko Haram. So the soldiers we were with told me that in this village they said, look, the boys go and join Boko Haram and the girls go and marry Boko Haram fighters and they're part of the problem. You know, it's the Maoist thing. They're the sea in which the fish will swim. But what the villagers told me was a slightly different story. We had an interpreter who was from the military and he was interpreting from Kanuri into French. And I got the feeling that I wasn't getting the full story, that the villagers were trying to tell me something and he wasn't translating. So then after the trip, I sent the interviews to someone I know on the Nigerian side who speaks Kanuri. And sure enough, he retranslated. And what the villagers were saying to me was that, yes, Boko Haram do come in the night. And yes, sometimes, you know, boys do go and join them, but then the military come in the night and they say to the villagers, we are going to do to you exactly what we do to Boko Haram. We kill them unless you give us information, unless you collaborate with us. And then Boko Haram would come and we saw some houses which had been burnt because they had accused the villagers of collaborating with the military. So I understood that whereas in the West this conflict is generally seen as 
Islamists versus the forces of law and order. For those villagers, it was between two sides, both of whom were oppressing them, and they were left in an impossible situation. So, was that the impossible situation in which our murdered four had found themselves, unable to betray both or nobody, victims of a ground war that had made them all pawns in someone else's game? Next time on the Bellingcat Podcast. One of the analysts came up with using a shadow calculation, basically turning a human rights abuser into a sundial. Combining all those elements together, we could say by the meter where the two women and the young children were shot. Someone's like, I've got it. It's here. And that was The Executions from Series 2 of the Bellingcat Podcast. The rest of the series is available wherever you get your podcasts and check out the full investigation at bellingcat.com. My thanks to Elliot Higgins and the Bellingcat team for letting us feature this episode. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 